Hello and good evening, brothers and sisters. Uh, praises be to our loving Abba. We are gathered once again to study his words. Welcome to another episode of the BQA Bible Questions and Answers. And tonight we will dedicate this episode to answer with just one question. That question being, is the Bible a man-made book? But before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting and most holy Father, yes. thank you, gracious Yahuwah Allahim, yes. for your blessings upon our life. Amen. We live and exist because of you. Yes, oh it God. is you who continues to bless and guide your people throughout the world, yes, despite God. what is happening, O oh Father. Yes, the yes. testing of our faith, the tribulations we go through, yes, you keep us calm and confident. Yes. Because we have something to hope for, yes. and our hope and faith is based upon your word. Amen. And so we will study your holy book. Yes. May you please bless us with even stronger faith yes. okay. that as we go on in our journey, we shall find even more confidence in what we believe in. Amen. Our loving Mashiach Yahushua, yes. may you be by our side. May you increase our faith yes. and may you please forgive all our sins. Amen. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for attending our Bible study for today. Again, the question we ask is, is the Bible a man-made book? And this came from uh, one of our viewers who gave us the following query. Hello, Poka John. Good morning. I hope you are doing well and same with your family. My sister uh, just, just came up with the weirdest question that I think even a child would be able to answer right away. She asked me who really is the author of the Bible. Uh, one who had a clear mind would say the answer is God through the apostles and prophets guided by the Holy Spirit. She has this perception that the Bible is just some sort of a book that is based on myth or religion, and now is questioning the authenticity of the Bible because it was written a long time ago. I'm afraid that her faith has wavered because of the worries and extreme trials that she's facing with her life right now. To put a period to my conversation with her, I simply answer her that I walk by faith, not by sight, which is written in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So that's a good, perfect answer. That's a good answer to the person who's going through difficult times. And all of us, really, when we think about it, we all have something in common with all humanity, that is, life is short. And in this short life, we have lots of tribulation, right? And so all of us go through difficult events. And it's good to follow the principle to walk by faith and not by sight. However, the good news when it comes to the Christian faith is our faith is not a blind faith. Because there are many different faiths in the world today, right? There are many people who don't believe in the Bible, but they say they live by faith and not by sight. And so you can apply that principle as well, even with those who don't believe in the Holy Bible. However, the Christian faith is not a blind faith because our faith is based upon the Bible. And the Bible is unique, which is why we're going to spend some time in addressing uh, the question that is posed here. Is the Bible a man-made book? based on myth and legend? Is it a book that is authored only by man who is the true author of the Holy Bible? So what does the Bible say about the Bible? Let's read the book of 2 Timothy 3 verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, 
which is in Christ Yahushua. And so what makes the Bible set apart from other books? The Bible calls itself holy scriptures. The word holy means set apart. And so the Bible is different from other books. There are many books in the world today. And when you look at the holy scriptures or the Bible, it's very, very unique. It's unique because not only is it the book that has been abused the most because so many people have tried to remove the Bible from the face of the earth. Voltaire, in fact, once said that he examined the Bible and exposed all of its errors. And so he said after he died or hundreds of years later, after he dies, the Bible will no longer exist. However, that's not what we find. The Bible is printed. And there's so many Bibles today countless numbers more than billions and we know by far it is the number one uh purchased book it's the number one book in the houses of people today and so despite the fact many people try to eradicate the bible it's still here and it's still very strong however that's not what makes the scriptures holy what makes the scriptures holy let's read the book of second timothy we read 15 Let's go to 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so what makes the Holy Bible unique, set apart, or wholly different from other so-called religious books? The Bible, all of scripture, is breathed out by God. In other words, the Bible is not the product of inspiration from men. It is the product of God breathing out his will and his thoughts so that mankind can benefit from them. And so the author then of the Holy Scriptures, which is why we call it Holy Scriptures, is God himself. Yahuwah is the one author of the Holy Bible. Well, how did Yahuwah Alba breathe out his mind so that people can receive the teachings of Abba? Let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. For no prophecy recorded in scripture was ever thought of by the prophet himself. It was the Holy Spirit within these godly men who gave them true messages from God. And so how did God author the book which what we, we, that we call the Bible today? Well, Yahuwah from heaven, right? He breathes out his mind into the thoughts of human beings by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so when God sends the Holy Spirit to people who have been appointed to write the Bible they write according to the Holy Spirit moving them. And so we have the author of the Bible, Yahuwah Abba, but he has scribes. He has writers. Yahuwah God's not going to type it for us. The message comes from him, but the one who writes it on parchment or on animal skin, the one who writes it on stone are human beings. However, what is the proof? that the Holy Bible is indeed from God, because it's one thing to say and to claim that the Bible is authored by God, and another thing altogether to prove and to demonstrate 
that the Bible indeed is authored by God. So tonight, we're going to give you seven proofs, seven reasons why God is indeed the author of the Bible or the Holy Scriptures. What is proof number one? Number one, there's unity and harmony from cover to cover. How many here have read the Holy Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation? When you read the Holy Scriptures from cover to cover, it reads as though there's only one author, one theme. And what showcases the fascinating idea, this fascinating truth that the Bible has and has displayed unity and harmony from cover to cover. Well, consider the fact that the Holy Scriptures was written, okay, not by one, not by two, but by over 40 different people, because people sometimes think that the Bible was written by only one person. That's not true. What makes the Bible different from mythologies and books of legend is that there are many writers in the Bible, independent people, and they wrote about controversial topics. Not only that, it also took more than 1,500 years some say even 1,600 years. And so you have 40 different people, some kings, some tax collectors, some fishermen. You have different kinds of people who wrote the Bible, right? And it took them 1,500 years. And despite that, when you look at the Bible from cover to cover, Every passage of every book fit together harmoniously without any contradictions. Not only is it without contradiction, you can see that there is an element of design from cover to cover. It speaks of only one theme, basically the redemption of mankind. And the reason for that is because there's only one author. Who is that? Yahuwah Abba. Because if you think about books, if you, for example, put in a room five different people to write about five different controversial subjects, you're going to find lots of contradictions. But imagine 40 people spanning 1,600 years, and they write together. They don't, they're independent from each other, separated by space and time, obviously. Yet when you look at their different works, it fits together like hand in glove. Every piece is there by design. Every piece flows together nicely to produce one thing, harmoniously interacting with one another, which communicates to us the work of Yahuwah Abba concerning the redemption of mankind. That's only possible if the author is God himself. What else? is the reason why we believe that God is the author of the Bible. Well, unlike mythology and books of legend, the Bible is confirmed by archaeology. Archaeology is a science. When you go and look for artifacts, when you dig uh, excavations, and you look at proofs that the events and the people and the places mentioned in the Bible actually existed. And so what biblical archaeologists do is they look at the events in the Bible, right, and look to see whether or not there is support from other fields, other historical documents, 
if there is something from the past that shows that what the Bible says is indeed history, not mythology, not legend, not fiction, but fiction. And so biblical archaeology is a fast-growing field, especially today, and more and more archaeological findings are being uncovered. And what archaeology has confirmed is that the Bible is indeed true. No archaeological evidence has ever refuted the Bible. Hundreds of archaeological finds support the Holy Bible. According to Nelson Gluick from his book, Rivers in the Desert, as a matter of fact, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail in historical statements in the Bible. And the Dean of Archaeology has this to say, William Albright, the narratives of the patriarchs of Moses and the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan, of the judges, the monarchy, exile, restoration have all been confirmed and illustrated to an extent that I should have thought impossible 40 years ago. There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. And so according to archaeologists today, according to archaeologists from decades ago, they confirm the same thing. Whenever an archaeological find uh, comes up, it never controverts, it never contradicts a teaching of the scripture. Are we saying that archaeology has confirmed the entire scripture? No, what we're saying is this. If ever there's an archaeological find, it supports rather than contradicts the scripture. This has been going on for decades and centuries. And so what does this tell us? It tells us we can be confident about the historicity of the biblical stories, the biblical events. You cannot say that when it comes to books of mythology. You cannot say that when it comes to books of legends. Here are some examples of what has been uh, uh, confirmed by archaeological findings. In the Old Testament, for example, uh, we find in the Ebla tablets, the, the story of creation from nothing, flood accounts, worldwide stories, the Tower of Babel, Sumerian ziggurats, the patriarchs and the Mary letters, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, we've talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and how we find evidence of a big conflagration that destroyed cities there near Israel. Uh, we find the Exodus evidence in Arabia, King David, Solomon, the Assyrian invasion, King Jehu, Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel has been found, Jewish captivity, uh, King Jehoiakim's records. If you remember, we read about in Daniel concerning the kings during the time of Babylon, we find corroboration from other artifacts, from other finds in archaeology. However, what is even more fascinating about archaeology in the Bible is it connects different ideas and stories in the Bible together. Like what we said, the proof that it's just one author is the fact that there's harmony, there's design in the Holy Scriptures. And this is also evident when it comes to uh, looking into 
the history, the, the archaeology of the Bible. For example, um, considering Nebuchadnezzar, considering Babylon, we know about Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the kings of Babylon, right? We studied this in the book of Daniel. However, Daniel eventually dies. I mean, no, Nebuchadnezzar eventually dies. Somebody takes over. Do you know who took over after Nebuchadnezzar? history, historical documents. After Nebuchadnezzar dies, who takes over? This is what the records teach. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC after ruling 43 years. The ensuing years of Babylonian history till its overthrow by Cyrus in 539 BC were marked by progressive deterioration, intrigue, and murder. Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach, what a name, huh? Evil Merodach, who ruled for two years. And you can even read about this in the, in the biblical records in 2 Kings and Jeremiah. Evil Merodach was murdered in August 560 by Neriglisar, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, and Evil Merodach's own brother-in-law. Neriglisar then ruled for four years. He is Nergal Shadazer mentioned in Jeremiah 39, 3 and 13. At, at his death, uh, he was succeeded by his young son, Labashi Marduk, who ruled only two months, May and June 556, before he was assassinated and succeeded by Nabonidus, who reigned 17 years from 556 to 539 BC. And so that's basically the number of kings who ruled ever after Nebuchadnezzar up to the point right before they were destroyed by Persia, by Cyrus the Great. And so when you look at the lines of the kings, the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar, it went from Nebuchadnezzar and after him who ruled? Evil Merodach. After evil Merodach, who ruled? Neriglisar. After Neriglisar, who ruled? Labashi Marduk. And after Labashi Marduk, who ruled? It was Nabonidus, and eventually Babylon was destroyed. Conquered by who? Persia, right? Conquered by Cyrus the Great. And so this is according to historical records, archaeological digs that, that were uncovered when they found ancient Babylon, okay? And so according to archaeology outside the Holy Bible, the last king before it was conquered was Nabonidus. However, when we read the Holy Bible, there are those who criticize the Bible for making a mistake because that's not what we find in the Babylonian records. Because in Daniel 5, this is the biblical record now, it says the following. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast of 1,000 of his nobles and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. And when we read the rest of the story, that's when we find the handwriting on the wall. And that's when... Uh, uh, Persia and led by Cyrus the Great would eventually destroy the people of 
Babylon. But according to the book of Daniel, according to the biblical record, who was the last king? What's his name? Belshazzar. So which is correct? And so scholars before were criticizing the Bible for being wrong because the Babylonian records say it was Nabodinus. And the Bible says, no, it's not him. It's Belshazzar. And so they're criticizing the Bible. The Bible got it wrong. However, eventually they discover what is called the Nabodinus Cylinder. And it's now in the British Museum. According to this cylinder, as for this is what's written on it, or part of it, uh, as for me, Nabodinus, king of Babylon, uh, save me from sinning against your great godhead and grant me as a present a lifelong of days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great godhead in his heart. And may he not commit any cultic mistake. May he be stated with a life of plenitude. And so before this discovery, they claim that the Bible invented this Belshazzar figure. But when they discovered this cylinder in Babylon, what have they found out? Found out that Nabonidus had a son who was serving as co-regent with Nabonidus for Babylon, because eventually Nabonidus would be exiled and Belshazzar was acting as king of Babylon. And so Daniel was actually, was actually more refined. It was more precise in its presentation than the other archeological information. This tells us the Bible indeed speaks the truth. And eventually archeological findings will confirm the truthfulness of the historicity of holy scriptures. And another uh, fascinating archaeological discovery that connects different stories together is one found in the book of John, chapter 5, 1 to 9. Uh, sometime later, Yahushua went up to Jerusalem for a feast to the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem near Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, right? And what did Yahushua do? Um, when Yahushua saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is steered. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Yahushua said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which he took this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Bible tells us there was an event that took place in the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath. What happened on a Sabbath in the pool of Bethesda? There was a man who was an invalid for how long? 38 years. Yahushua comes along and he heals him. And so he was able to walk. Is there such a thing as a pool of Bethesda? They have discovered the ruins of the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. In connection with this, there's another one in the book of John 9, 1, 2, 3, 6 to 7. As he went along, he saw a man Blind from birth, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, 
who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Yahushua. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Another miracle took place in Jerusalem, this time in a place called Siloam. Did you know that Yahusha did uh, two miracles in Jerusalem? And those two miracles took place in those two pools. The pool of Bethesda, the invalid was cured. And the pool of Siloam, the blind man was cured. Did they find this pool of Siloam? They did. This is how it looked like. It was actually paved, which makes a lot of sense because if the blind man was able to find his way to the pool of Siloam, well, it has to be a well-known place. And it has to be a nice paved road towards it so that he will not trip and fall, right? And this is how it looks like today. You can go there if you want. Nice pool of Siloam. Can you imagine Yahusha walked those streets? He went to this place, Yahusha. That's where he cured the blind man. And maybe one day we can go there when we visit uh, Jerusalem. Take note, all this took place in Jerusalem, in the city of David. This took place right here. And when you think about it, what is so fascinating about these um, archaeological discoveries is how two events can be connected through time and space. So they find these archaeological Findings, the pool of Siloam, the pool of Bethesda, and the blind man and the lame were healed. And when you think about it, prophecy was actually being fulfilled in the pools. Because long ago, thousands of years before that, someone who was in that place by the name of David said something. What did he say? 2 Samuel 5, 6-9. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David so, uh, through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. And so thousands of years before Yahusha was there in the pool of Siloam, in the pool of Bethesda, there was David. And he was just anointed king of both Israel and Judah. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he wanted to take Jerusalem. But the Jebusites were there. And when he was going to attack and take the city of Jebusites, the Jebusites warned him, if you go there, uh, the blind and the lame will destroy you. And so David was offended by that, which is why he said, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind. And from there, the proverb eventually developed, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. And so here's King David, right, who would make a remark that the blind and the lame shall not come into the house of Yahuwah. And the son of David, what did he do in Jerusalem? The two miracles he did. What did he do? He healed the lame and 
the blind, which connects these ideas together. This is why when you look at the Holy Bible, although it had 40 different writers, there's really only one author because all the different ideas, all the different principles, all the different events, they all connect together somehow. The more you look at it, the more you see that connection, the more you're able to say, this is not a man-made book. This came from Yahuwah Abba. Okay, so what's reason number three? Reason number two was confirm confirmation by archaeology. Reason number three, foundation for moral excellence. The Bible is known for its teachings concerning morality. It is also an inspiring book. No book has ever changed the lives of people more so than the Holy Bible, according to the book of Psalms 119, 160. There's nothing but truth in your word and all of your righteous regulations endure forever. This is why the Bible is a timeless book, because its principles, they remain and are eternal. And this was tested actually in 1993. This is a social experiment. You know how you have uh, social experiments that come into, come into being that were not uh, really designed. It just so happened that all the elements kind of fell into place. And so you have yourself a, a social experiment. Here was a, a, a social experiment that took place back in 1963, because according to this document, Family Policy, written by William Bennett, to understand such perceptions, one has to consider that since 1960, violent crime has risen 560%, illegitimate births have increased 400%, teen suicides have risen 200%, divorce rates have quadrupled, uh, quadrupled, average SAT scores have dropped 80 points, and the proportion of children living in fatherless families has increased threefold. Since 1963, divorce rates escalate, breakup of family units increase, acceptance of homosexuality, teenage pregnancies, murder of inconvenient babies called abortion, crime rates have increased. And so things went from bad to worse in the 1960s because prior to 1963, you know, the United States, they were thriving in everything because they were following certain principles. But after 1963, it went downwards. Why? What happened in 1963? Well, they stopped teaching the Bible and the Ten Commandments in the schools. And so this was kind of like an experiment, although it was not intentional, right? And so when you look at the data, and it's, there's an effect after the Bible was taken from the schools, that meant that people growing up no longer had a moral compass. They were not following the principles of the Holy Bible. And when you look at what the Bible teaches and its relation to history and the development of civilization, the Bible has abolished slavery, gave value to women, right? Uh, gave voice to the poor and oppressed and created the foundation for a peaceful and thriving civilization. This is why the Holy Scriptures represents a foundation for moral, for moral excellence. That's reason number three. Reason number four, it also contains advanced medical and scientific knowledge. For example, in Leviticus 12, verse three, on the eighth day, the boy's foreskin must be circumcised. This was during the days of Abraham, before Moses. 
The Bible says on the eighth day, your boys have to be circumcised. Not on the seventh, not on the ninth, but on the eighth day. And science today, medicine today, have concluded circumcision is uh, good for your health. Because it, te- the, the uh, studies have shown um, that uh, 10 to 20 times more urinary tract infections in those who are uncircumcised compared with circumcised. Also, sexually transmitted diseases are passed more readily among men who have not been circumcised. And also penile cancers occur almost entirely in uncircumcised men. So there's a lot of benefits from circumcision. However, that's not the only fascinating idea that comes from that passage. Because when you go back to Leviticus 12.3, it specifically says when circumcision should take place. Not the seventh day, not the ninth day, but when? The eighth day specifically. And is there a reason for that? Yes. There's actually a medical and scientific reason for why the eighth day out of all the days in the existence of a person, the eighth day is the absolute best day to get circumcision. Because on the eighth day, if you look at this graph, right, you have on the horizontal line, the number of days after birth, the vertical line, you have how much prothrombin. And so on the eighth day, you notice on the eighth day, you get the most prothrombin. What is the value of prothrombin? That is the coagulate uh, uh, element found in blood. Without that, blood will not clot. So you need that for blood to clot. If you're going to circumcise someone, well, if they don't have this blood clotting agent, what's going to happen to the child? It's going to bleed to death, right? So you want to make sure if you're going to circumcise a baby, you want to make sure it's at the right time when prothrombin is at its peak. It just so happens it's at its peak at the eighth day. After the eighth day, there is significant drop off. You notice how much it drops off after the eighth day? This is why many uh, medical professionals conclude on the eighth day, the amount of prothrombin present actually is elevated above 100% of normal. And it's the only day in the male's life in which this will be the case under normal conditions. If surgery is to be performed, day eight is the perfect day to do it, vitamin K, and prothrombin prothrombin levels are at their peak. How do you think Moses knew that? How did did he know that? It was because Yahuwah God is the author. Moses was simply what? The writer. You see, this is just one of so many advanced medical and scientific knowledge found in the Holy Bible. We're not going to go through all of them because there's too many. And so we'll just go to reason number five and reason number five is supernatural design because if you were the author of the bible you're going to find design elements that could not have been invented by people who were writing fiction and there's so many in the holy bible we'll go through just one or actually two but it comes from one passage and that one passage comes from Genesis 5, 6 to 32. I'm not going to read the passage because this is a genealogy. Usually when you read the Bible and you get a genealogy, what do you do? You skip it, right? 
Oh, it's just the genealogy. What's the big deal? You can't learn anything from that. That's probably right if the author is not gone. But if the author is gone, there's probably some design elements hidden in there that's not readily evident. But if you look deeper, you will find it. And Genesis 5, 6 to 32, this genealogy is actually filled and rich with insight and information that will stagger the mind. We're going to look at two just from this genealogy. Two insights. Insight number one, when you look at the genealogy, uh, you actually find a lot of numbers, right? You might think, oh, those numbers don't mean a thing. They do. It shows us when and how long each of the patriarchs lived. And when you look at how long their, their lifespan was, it was 912, 905, 910, 895, 962, 969, 777. You see that, right? And so when you look at that, it gives us data. And so the genealogy actually gives us data, right? Not only Genesis 5, but also other parts of scripture gives us this kind of data that begins in Genesis 5. And pretty soon you get a pattern. For example, this is the, the, the patriarchs, the date of their age, right? And we go on to Shem, all the way to Abraham, and all the way to Aaron. And when you plug in all the data into a computer and you come up with a graph, the graph looks like this. You know what that is? That is a graph of a decay pattern. Yeah, it's a graph of a decay pattern. On a graph, the data taken from the declining lifespan for human beings after the fall reflect an exponential decay pattern. It looks very typical to many decay patterns seen in biology, a biological decay curve. This is to be expected if a recent human history is true, beginning with Adam and Eve created with perfect genomes, which undergoes a process of decay. So we start with Adam and Eve, right? And then they had perfect genomes. But because of the fall, because of the sin, what happened? They began to decline. They began to decay. And so instead of having these long lifespans, it kind of leveled off. It's called an exponential decay pattern. You find the decay pattern in so many uh, decay processes. For example, uh, in atoms that decay, biological processes that decay, you find the, sa the, the, the same exponential decay pattern, the decay of carbon-14, for example, matches the decay of the lifespan of the patriarchs. This is because something happened during the days of Adam and Eve. What was that? It was sin. Because of sin, what happened to creation? That the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay. And so all creation, whether biological or physical, has been have been subjected to the decay process. And we find that in Genesis chapter 5, the genealogy. Can you mention that? You find that in the genealogy. But that's not, that's not the only thing that you find in the genealogy. You also find the following uh, pattern. In Genesis 5, 632, this is the genealogy that we read earlier. It mentions different names, right? Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, it just so happens each of those names has a meaning. This is why the names uh, of the patriarchs and the names of the people of God, they're actually very important because in Hebrew, the names actually have a meaning and has a purpose. This genealogy has been placed in Genesis 
because it had a purpose. It teaches us something that is beyond the ability of human beings to comprehend, something that it cannot be, cannot be designed by ingenuity of man alone. And so what do we find here? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the different names presented in Genesis 5, 6 to 32, beginning with Adam, right, all the way to Noah. Remember, each name has a name, uh, a meaning. For example, the name of Adam means man. I mean, the name of Seth means appointed. Enosh, mortal. Kenan, sorrow. Mahalalel, the blessed of God. Jared shall descend. Enoch, training. Methuselah his death shall bring, lament, the despairing, Noah, comfort and rest. When you, when you read uh, the different meanings of these names in sequential order as presented in the genealogy, you come up with a sentence, a message. What is it? Man appointed moral sorrow, but the blessed of God shall descend training and his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. And that's found in Genesis chapter five. What does it tell us? It tells us the whole of scriptures from beginning to end. So Genesis chapter 5 tells us what's going to happen in between Genesis and Revelation, right? It's all right there. And so Genesis 5 is like an outline, but it's a hidden outline. It is hidden by in the, the meanings of the names from Adam to Noah, because it tells us the rest of the story that will take thousands of years to complete. Do you think man can come up with this all by himself? No way, right? No mythology, no man-made book can find this kind of design inside their scripture. This is holy scripture because it is authored by Yahuwah Abba. And this is just one example, or actually two examples. There are so many other examples of design elements like this found throughout the Holy Bible. And so we have supernatural design. Number six, we have prophecy. And this is Isaiah 42, eight to nine. I am Yahuwah, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. Everything I prophesied has come true. And now I will prophesy again. I will tell you the future before it happens. And so what else? Uh, proves that the Bible is a book that comes from God and is not simply man-made. Well, it contains prophetic uh, statements, statements about the future before it happens. And it actually happens. And one of the fascinating things about scripture, which makes it different from many so-called religious books, is prophecy. I mean, is there a myth, a mythical book, a myth, book of mythology that has prophecy? Does, do myth books have design elements? Do mythical books have uh, archaeological confirmation? None. But the Bible is unique because it has all that and also prophecy. And so many people have studied the prophecies of the Holy Bible. And one author, his name is Ralph Moncaster, said Bible prophecies are of all types, information about events to occur, about how and when things will happen, and about specific people. Some prophecies were made about events that were imminent. Others were about events occurring hundreds of years later. Prophets who were wrong in the short term were stoned. Their prophecies were not included in scripture. 
The Bible contains more than 1,000 prophecies. As a matter of fact, more than 2,000 prophecies. 668 are known to be fulfilled, with none ever proved false. There are three that have not yet been confirmed. Um, virtually all unfulfilled prophecies relate to the second coming of Christ and the end times. So many have studied the scripture's prophecies and have confirmed its veracity. But what is so unique and so fascinating about all the prophecies are the prophecies that connect different prophecies together. What do you mean by that? Here's a perfect example of what I mean. Because remember, the purpose of our study today is to show you the author is God. I mean, just fulfilled prophecies alone proves that Yahuwah God is the author of the Bible, right? But what if you have prophecy fulfilled um, statements of, of things that will happen in the future? What if you get prophecies from the past, prophecies in the present, and you create prophecies for the future, if you get it, you know, di different design elements using prophecy as the element and come up with a grander prophecy. That's something else. Only Yahuwah God can think of something like that. And we have a good example of one right here in the book of Luke 11, 29 to 30. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So here's Yahushua. He's prophesying here. But in his prophecy, he's connecting another prophecy, right? What prophecy is he connecting to the prophecy he was making right there and then? Prophecy concerning Jonah, the prophet. That's why he says, for as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Because at this point in Messiah's ministry, he's telling the Jewish people they have to do something. If they don't do this, then the pattern of what happened during the days of Jonah will repeat itself. That's why we need to look at what happened during the days of Jonah. What was Yahushua warning uh, the people about? Well, we read 29 to 30. Let's read verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And so according to Yahushua, he likens himself to who? Jonah. The Ninevites likened, uh, are likened to the people of Israel. Do you see the connection? The parallelism? Again, this is um, the using of uh, the design elements found in the book of Jonah in a, prophet, in a prophetic um, framework. And so here's Yahushua telling them there's something you have to do because if you don't do this, well, what will happen to you is what should have happened and could have happened during the days of Nineveh. Because during the days of Nineveh, uh, when Jonah went to Nineveh and he began to preach, if they did not repent, what would happen to them? They would be destroyed, right? And so what is Yahusha expecting from the preaching of Messiah, of his preaching, 
What was he expecting from the people of Israel when Messiah was preaching? What was he expecting? That the people of Israel would repent and accept him as their king. And so if they will not repent, what would happen to the people of Israel? In Jonah 3, 4 to 5, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And so here we have the prophecy in Jonah. And this prophecy in Jonah is relevant during the days of Israel in the first century because Yahushua said so. He gave it as a sign. And so what was expected from the Ninevites after the preaching of Jonah? That they would repent. Did they repent? Yeah. And because they repented, they were spared. But if they did not repent, what would have happened to them? The Bible says they would be overturned. You see that? The city would be overturned. And this would take place after 40 days. Again, this is a prophecy. And there's many prophecies in the Holy Bible that equate days with years. For example, in Ezekiel 4, 6, after you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days a day for each year. And also in Numbers 14, for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days. So in prophecy, a day can stand for a year. So when you look at the prophecy of Jonah, there was a warning given for those who will not repent. If they don't repent, what will happen to the city? It will be overturned. And when will this overturning or destruction of the city take place? After 40 days. And so when Messiah was preaching to the Israelites, what was he expecting from the Israelites? That they would repent. If they will not repent after 40 days or 40 years, what would happen to the, to the Israelites? The city of Jerusalem would be overturned. Do you see the prophecy there? Very nice, right? It's not just a prediction of events. It uses all the other parts of the Holy Bible. Ezekiel, Numbers, Jonah, all of that, from the, which is separated by time and space. And Mashiach uses all of that for a prophetic statement. And what did Yahushua say will happen? If he is to be rejected, in Matthew 24, 1 to 2, then Yahushua went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Yahushua said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's what Yahushua says. And when will this happen? Let's read Luke 19, 41, 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
that time of visitation when Yahusha presented himself as Mashiach, when he show, showed them the sign of Jonah that they should have repented, but they rejected the preaching of Mashiach. And because of this, what did Yahushua say will happen to Jerusalem? It will be leveled and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Just like what should have happened to Nineveh. But it didn't happen in Nineveh. It will happen in Jerusalem. When will this take place? 40 years after the warning was given. When was the warning given? 30 AD. Do you know what happened 40 years later? In 70 AD was the complete destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And so that's an example of a harmonious interaction of different elements of prophetic design in different books of the Holy Bible. And it was presented in masterful, masterful form by Mashiach Yahusha. Tell me, is there any book like that? There's no book like that. Only the Holy Bible. This is why when we look at the seven reasons why God is the author of the Bible, you can't really deny it anymore. Number one, there's unity and harmony from cover to cover, right? We see that. Number two, it's confirmed by archaeology. Number three, it's a foundation for moral excellence. Number four, it contains advanced medical and scientific knowledge. Number five, it has elements of supernatural design. Number six, it has prophecy that uses the elements of supernatural design. And lastly, and this is the best part of all, the number one reason why God is the author of the Bible. Do you know what it is? The number one reason why God is the author of the Bible. Why this is not a man-made book. Number one reason, John 5.39. You study the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. And these very scriptures speak about me. You see, number seven is the most powerful one. Because it speaks about the person and ministry of Yahusha. No other personality in the history of mankind did what Yahusha did. When you examine what he taught, there was nothing like it. <laughs> nothing like it. Look at his parables. Look at his teachings. He spoke with authority. Nothing could match what was spoken. Nothing could match what was done by Yahusha. The person and ministry of Yahusha. That is the most powerful proof that indeed the Bible is the author or the God is the author of the Holy Bible. We're not going to study number seven today, but next week we're going to show you that Yahusha indeed existed. He was here on earth. He really died. And we will show you proofs, not just from the Bible, but events outside the Bible that confirm Yahusha died. Not only that, we will show you strange events that took place in 30 AD. And we cannot wait to demonstrate to you that indeed Yahusha HaMashiach is what the whole Bible is all about. Old Testament and New Testament, it speaks about who? Yahusha. It is a Yahusha-centric book. And when you put all this together, the unity, the harmony, 
be tested by archaeology, foundation for moral excellence, containing advanced medical and scientific knowledge, supernatural design, supernatural prophecy. The person of ministry of Yahusha, you only have one conclusion. The Bible is not an ordinary book. It is a book that is authored by who? Yahuwah Abba. There's just no way. Human ingenuity, no matter how smart a person is, there's just no way the Bible can be a product of human thinking. It's a product of Yahuwah's grace for all of us because he wants each and every one of us to understand who he is and who his son is and their work of salvation for our souls. This is why next week we'll talk about the number seven, the person in ministry of Yahusha, proving that the Bible indeed is from God. That is our lesson for today. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, yes, merciful and loving Yahuwah Alahim, yes, thank you for giving us this precious collection yes. of works that you have authored. Amen. Yes, human beings were used to write yes. them down, but you were the one who placed in their minds through your Holy Spirit, yes, the Lord. things that needed to be written down. Amen. We can see your purpose and intention yes, to convince us, to provide evidence that indeed you are Yahuwah Alahim yes, and that Lord. you sent your only begotten son, our loving Mashiach Yahusha, yes. for the salvation of our souls. Amen. Please bless those who listen to your holy words. Yes. May we be changed by them. Yes. transformed by them yes. to become the people you want us to be. Amen. Our loving Mashiach Yahusha, yes. please increase our faith and strengthen us. May you help us to understand your teachings. Yes. Bless us with more wisdom yes. that we can all use this wisdom to become more and more effective yes. in filling the purpose of our creation, Amen. in fulfilling the purpose of why we have become your servants. Yes. That is to proclaim your righteousness yes. and to make the laws of Abba great and honorable. Amen. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.